Uh, good evening. I'm Tim Robertson. I'm the director of the Royal Society of Literature. Uh, a very warm welcome to this event uh, coming out 50 years of gay literature with, uh, from your right to left, Neil Bartlett, Dean Atter, Mel Kenyon and Maureen Duffy. Uh, I think in the distinguished 196-year history of the Royal Society of Literature, we suspect that this is the first time that publicly on stage there have been all queer, lesbian, gay, whatever we want to use words, all of those words to be discussed tonight. Uh, so I think that's something we can feel proud of. Um, at the uh, Royal Society of Literature, we are under our 1825 Royal Charter, responsible for the advancement of literature in the United Kingdom, uh, and we uh, are governed by our around 500 fellows who are distinguished writers who are elected to the literary honour of being fellows of the Royal Society of Literature. Uh, Maureen uh, is one of our fellows and one of our vice presidents, and we are, have some of our other fellows in the audience, I think, with us tonight. Another of our vice presidents, Maggie G, uh, and at least three other fellows, I think, Georgina Hammock, Michelle Roberts, and Nick Rankin. You're very welcome here. Uh, now, uh, in the Royal Society of Literature's uh, annual calendar, one of the things that we do each year is come here to the LSE to be part of the Literature Festival here. I gather we're one of the last events in this year's festival. I'm glad we got in before the end. Uh, it's a great pleasure and honour for us to be here. The LSE is one of the great educational establishments of the world, and we are a world that needs greater educational establishments, are we not? We are very pleased to be part of this uh, festival. Uh, and given that this year's theme is revolutions, we thought at the RSL about how to think about that from a, uh, a literary point of view and decided to uh, look at the 50 years since the 1967 Act on Homosexuality, uh, decriminalisation, recriminalisation in a different way, all to be discussed, what that Act did, and whether and or to what extent that has brought about a revolution in lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer identities uh, since in the 50 years since then, and what has been the relationship between that revolution or not, and literature. Has that influenced literature? Has li literature influenced that? Uh, and so that was why we have our panel of speakers of different generations of uh, lesbian and gay people through uh, those 50 years. Uh, and then another link between them all is theatre and performance. Uh, uh, Neil and Maureen are both playwrights, among other things. Uh, Dean is a performer of his poetry as well as a, a writer uh, of it. Uh, and uh, we're very pleased that we have this evening Mel Kenyon to chair the discussion. Uh, Mel is head of theatre uh, of the theatre department at Casarotto Ramsey Associates. Uh, and among the people she represents are Sarah Kane and Simon Stevens. Uh, the format of this evening is uh, discussion by the panel, then open up to uh, questions. Please wait for the mic to come to you because it is being recorded. Uh, and then we imagine we're going to run about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, and there's book signing afterwards outside if you'd like to join us for that. Uh, here's to a great discussion. Oh, no. God, I hope so. <laughs> OK, chaps, I usually hate people who sit and look at computers, and actually mine's just gone to pictures, so... That shows how good I am at this. Um, but I'm in such celebrated company that I'm absolutely terrified. So <laughs> <laughs> I had to have notes. Uh, you've all got, uh, I hope, a kind of programme, because this is to do with theatre, and the lights should be dimmed so that we all look beautiful. That hasn't happened. Anyway... Um, so I'm very briefly going to introduce everybody here. And then, because I think 
I'm going to be as quick as I can, but I think it will be very useful for everybody if I just go through Stonewall's LGBT timeline, just to give you a sense of the context from 67 to the present day, the political context in which we're having a discussion. I will do that as quickly as I can while still making sense. Uh, and Neil can tell me if I'm not making sense. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, we will start with the questions and the discussion, and we'll take everything from there. So, thank you. <laughs> So this is Maureen. She's a highly celebrated novelist, poet, playwright, non-fiction writer and activist and in 1995 was chosen as one of the 200 most influential gay people in Britain. She was on the Independent on Sunday's pink list in 2005 and in 2014 received an Icon Award for Outstanding Lifetime Achievement from Attitude magazine. Neil Bartlett is a director, translator, performer, novelist and playwright. He was a founding member of the renowned theatre company Gloria and artistic director of the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith from 1994 to 2004. And in the year 2000, I think, Neil was appointed an OBE for his service to the arts. Dean Atter has been described as one of uh, the leading lights of London's poetry scene and he has written and performed poems for the Damalola Taylor Trust, the Tate and the Houses of Parliament. And he was the winner of the 2012 London Poetry Award and in the same year was also included in the pink list. Mm -hmm. So, just to give you a very brief overview, this, of course, is not all the... I'm, I'm trying to be, give you the crucial dates without, uh, without going on too long because the Assemble Company is far more interesting than I am. But it may give you a sense... I'm only coming from 1967 because that is where this talk officially starts. Okay, so in 1967, the Sexual Offences Act decriminalizes sex between two men, but only over the age of 21 and in private. It did not extend to the Merchant Navy, the Armed Forces, Scotland, Northern Ireland, <laughs> the Channel Islands, or the Isle of Man, where sex between two men remained illegal. Uh, 1969, Stonewall Riots in America, a series of spontaneous violent demonstrations by members of the LGBT community against a police raid on the Stonewall Inn in Manhattan. And this key event triggers the modern LGBT liberation movement in the US and beyond. In 1970, the London Gay Liberation Front is established in the UK. In 1972, the first Pride March is held in London, attracting 2,000 participants. And Gay News, which we'll feature later, Britain's first gay newspaper is founded. 1977, Gay News magazine is then successfully prosecuted by Mary Whitehouse for blasphemy. You can see how this is going to pan out, can't you? 1981, the first case of AIDS was recorded in the UK when a 49-year-old 49 man was admitted to Brompton Hospital. In 1982, Terry Higgins died of AIDS in St. Thomas's Hospital. The Terry Higgins Trust was set up. It's the UK's first AIDS charity. Um, in 1984, just to put you, us all in context, lesbians and gays support the Miners' Campaign. Uh, for the strikes in 1984 and 85. 1988, 
Good old Maggie rears her ugly head and she introduces Section 28, which is an amendment to the Local Government Act. The Act states that a local authority shall not intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality or promote the teaching in any maintained school of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. She was a darling, wasn't she? <laughs> uh, 1994, the UK House of Commons moves to reduce the age of consent for same-sex relations between men to 16. The vote is defeated. The age of consent is instead lowered to 18. The age of consent for same-sex relationships between women is not set at all. <laughs> 1999, the Admiral Duncan, a gay pub in Soho, is bombed by a former British National Party member. The attack kills three people and wounds over 70. 2000, well, we're coming out of the Dark Ages, the UK government lifts the ban on lesbians, gay men, and bi people serving in the armed forces. Legislation is introduced to repeal Section 28 in England and Wales. The bill is defeated. Scotland, well done Scotland, abolishes Section 28. It remains in place in England and Wales. Stonewall's campaign to reduce the age of consent for same-sex relationships between men aged 16 is successful as changes are made to the Sexual Offences Act in 2000. Group sex between men is also decriminalised. Don't look at me. <laughs> I waited, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 2002, equal rights... They must have put something in the water in 2000. Equal rights are granted to same-sex couples applying for adoption. 2003... Now, it has to be in everybody's lifetime, at least now. Um, 2003, Section 28 is repealed in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, lifting the ban on local authorities, blah, 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 blah. 2004, the Civil Partnership Act of 2004 is passed, granting, granting civil partnerships in the United Kingdom. Uh, 2005, Christopher Cramp and Matthew Roach became the first couple to complete a civil partnership in the UK. Mr. Roach dies of terminal cancer the following day. Uh, 2007... The Equality Act, brackets, sexual orientation, close brackets, regulations 2007, outlawed the discrimination in the provision of goods, facilities, services, education, and public function on the grounds of sexual orientation. This is in 2007. 2009, David Cameron apologizes on behalf of the Conservative Party for the introduction of Section 28. <laughs> Uh, 2013, marriage, brackets, same-sex couples, close brackets, I do love those brackets, <laughs> is passed in England and Wales, and Alan Turing is given a posthumous royal pardon for his conviction of gross indecency, which resulted in him being chemically castrated and later committing suicide. 2014, the Marriage Act officially comes into force. 
2015, Ireland votes by a huge minority. Minor, majority. <laughs> huge majority. I'm sorry, I'm so in a minority, I can't get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> by a huge majority to legalise same-sex marriage, becoming the first country in the world to do so by a referendum. I knew that's why I had an Irish wife. Um, <laughs> However, in 2016, of course, 49 people are killed and 53 people injured after a gunman opens fire in an LGBT club in Pulse in Orlando. Oh, by the way, Prince William also appears on the front cover of gay magazine Attitude, stating that no one should be bullied because of their sexuality. Go, Prince William. So, if we go back to 67... Um, what was extraordinary, and I, 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 do you mind, boys, if I start with Maureen? Maureen, I, I believe, even prior to 1967 and the decriminalization of homosexuality, and by the way, women have never been criminalized because they don't actually believe we have sex. No. Um, uh, or we could say yes to it, and therefore the age consent has never existed. Um, uh, but you had been open before then, and in '66 published your lesbian novel, The Microcosm. Looking back through this timeline, that seems extraordinarily brave of you, and, and I wondered how and why you came out, uh, and what compelled you to write the novel. Well, um, I don't think it was incredibly brave. I mean, probably um, pig-headed. Um, a bit of the Irish in me there. Um, but um, I, there was immense pressure, quite rightly, to um, decriminalise male homosexuality. And the effect of this was to make female homosexuality even more obscure and invisible than it had been. So that um, there was a sense in which... Um, well, poor women, you know, they, they were just people who, they couldn't get a man. Um, and they ran tea shops and had cats. Um, and there was immense concentration on uh, male homosexuality. I have here um, a little book which was originally published in 1952 and then redone again in 62. Uh, there are 200, more or less, 200 pages in it. Eight pages mention female homosexuality. Um, and so I got quite pissed off, if I may say so, <laughs> um, uh, with the neglect, while at the same time, of course, having lots of male homosexual friends and not seeing why they should be prosecuted and why we should be, in a sense... Um, neglected and pushed aside as not really being interesting enough to prosecute. <laughs> um, so uh, I wanted, first of all, to write a non-fiction book, as there were several at the time, dealing with male homosexuality and talking about all the different things that people might do and the way they might conduct their lives and the jobs they might have and so on and so forth. And I thought, I will do that for women, um, just to even up the balance. 
And so I collected lots of interviews from uh, friends and fellow dancers at the gateways and um, started with my agent trying to find a publisher. And the publishers all said, oh, no, you can't write a book like that. You haven't got a degree in social science. <laughs> and in the end, somebody, a publisher, Anthony Blonde, who was rather risque and did all sorts of um, way-out publishing, uh, said, well, um, why don't you turn it into a novel? It'll be all right as a novel. Um, and I'll pay you £15 a week. And you was put in this scene and that scene, and we'll have that, and we'll have this. And I went home, and I rang my agent, and I said, um, well, I don't want to do it for Anthony, because he wants to interfere too much, so I won't have his £15 a week, but I will write a novel. Mm. And so I wrote The Microcosm, and, of course, when The Microcosm came out, I could not be prosecuted, because it wasn't illegal for us, so, as the impetus grew for decriminalising male homosexuality, I was able, because I hadn't got a job, I'm a self-employed writer, and I hadn't any parents or anybody else who was going to be alarmed by what I was doing, I was able to speak up and go on television and, and do things of that kind to try and advance the cause, both from the point of view of fairness, but also from the point of view of equality of perception of both men and women. So that was how I got involved. And, of course, the pressure grew and grew and grew, and Lord Wolfenden chaired a committee to look into it all. And many years later, I met him um, in a completely different context, um, looking for author's rights and I said to him why did you make the age of consent 21 and he being a crafty old bird said because I knew that was what I could get away with so that was how that particularly came about and of course we kept up the pressure and uh, Joan Bakewell did an interview with me on late night lineup and etc etc and eventually, people saw sense. But it was both a struggle for equal understanding of women's homosexuality and fairness for men and, of course, decriminalisation. I think one of the things that really provoked me particularly was the prosecution in 1957 of Sir John Gielgud for cottaging, as it was called. Um, I thought, if somebody like that can be prosecuted, what hope is there really for the rest of us? It's got to change. So that was it. Thank you. Um, Neil? Yes. Um, 67, I'm not revealing your age, but 67. So you, 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 know, you were a young man by, the, you know, by 1967, and when we... I know, was nine. 
<laughs> yes, I was young. I was young. Although, although when, I, when we talked about decriminalisation before, you said, you know, obviously when I was a young man, uh, it wasn't decriminalised. No, was, I it, think... That, yeah. You know, and, and even when you're as young as nine, yeah. I think there's probably an inculcation of a the collective psyche or culture. So I just wondered whether the fact that it had been illegal and was now legal, but not really legal as you were growing up into your teens and 20s and becoming a young man, um, how it affected you emotionally, psychologically, and also whether it compelled you to become the artist, the writer, the theatre maker that you then became? Oh, Lord, this is such a big can of worms. Um, Just to start by saying, one of the things that's happening this year is everyone's using the phrase the decriminalisation of homosexuality. And as Mel's very capable introduction and Maureen's personal testimony has shown, that phrase shouldn't really be used. 1967 was a very, very, very partial beginning of a very long process. And certainly when I was growing up as a baby gay, I had no sense <laughs> that we, I was living in a country which had taken a collective decision to begin the political moves towards social equality. In fact, I felt the absolute opposite. Um, I... I began my sex life around 13, 14, and so I was in danger of arrest for uh, eight years. It didn't stop me. Um, but it, I guess I just took the idea of illegality as the logical consequence of the complete social impossibility of uh, being gay, queer, whatever the word was back in those days. It was mostly gay, I think. Although when I was a teenager, there was no word. Mm -hmm. Um, The kind of life I was living, I had an idyllic childhood um, in a beautiful place in the south of England with two parents who adored me. And the first time I had ever had sex with a man in a house, um, I met him in a public toilet. He was actually my divinity teacher from school. <laughs> he put, he lay me on the back seat of his car and covered me with a rug to drive me to his house. And I thought, I didn't really think anything about it. I knew exactly, so I knew why he was doing that. Go figure, what an extraordinary thing for me to say yes to, that that was a normal thing for me to do because I wanted to have sex. I was 14, of course I wanted to have sex. And that, that prohibition, that sense of impossibility, um, was complete in the kind of family and the kind of town that I was growing up in. Equal and opposite to that... I discovered straight away that there was a whole parallel universe in which being gay was fantastic, 
that having sex with a divinity teacher in a public toilet was the mere tip of the iceberg. <laughs> um, I was... I read Genet when I was 14 because next to... I remember this particular edition of the book. I used to stand in my bookshop. Or I would... My route home from school, as well as cottaging, I used to go to the town library, but also go to our bookshop, where the owner would let me stand and read books. And I read that one. But also I read Our Lady of the Flowers. Um, I didn't buy it because I figured my mum might say, what's that? It has a picture of a man without any clothes on on the cover. Um, And through that door of gorgeous radical fiction and then a few years later once I had been through college and then moved to London which I did in 1980 I think no 81 I discovered radical queer theatre of every kind from I was involved in the early 80s with a small-scale gay community theatre group who toured the first play about AIDS in this country in 1983, which I helped to tour around the country, going to student unions and so on, but also discovering the work of the Glasgow Citizens under Giles Havergal and Philip Prowse. So at the same time as there was an apparently complete prohibition, the prohibition was, in my case, I was lucky. I never... I'm damaged, like everyone else, who was taught that in order to have sex you have to lie down and have a blanket put on top of you. You don't go through those things unscathed. But I wasn't that damaged. I don't think I've ever been ashamed of myself. I've never self-harmed. Um... I've only been beaten up four times and I've only been arrested once. So I did just fine. And my parents loved me after I came out. Uh, There was a difficult patch that lasted about four years, but we got through it. They didn't throw me out of my house. So in my case, the prohibition didn't work. And I was very lucky I was in the right place at the right time to meet people of Maureen's generation who taught me about gay liberation and that that is what actually it was gay liberation and not gay prohibition that made me the man I am and also the artist I am could I say Maureen what an incredible honour it is to hear your testimony you say you say you weren't brave but all of us stand on other people's shoulders thank you I was just bloody minded Now, Dean, yes. um, you've probably had a... I don't know, maybe you have or haven't had a very different experience um, growing up as a young gay man. Um, I think I read an interview in which you said, uh, I knew I was black, but I had to find out I was gay, which is hmm. quite an interesting way to describe 
I, I think one's sexuality dawns on most of us. I mean, uh, you know, whether it dawns very early or, in well, my case, late. quite late. <laughs> uh, it is a dawning. Um, but I also know you're very uh, aware of uh, all of those many brave people who've gone before you. Mm. Wrote, you actually wrote a, a, a poem about Turing, which I think kind of displays both your anger at the treatment he received and the kind of lameness of the apology stroke pardon. Mm. Um, either you can answer the first question, or if you'd rather, and we'd all love to hear it, yeah. if you'd like to read everybody the poem, that would be fantastic. Okay, I'll read the poem first. Okay. So this poem's called I Beg Your Pardon. Alan Turing's pardon comes 60 years too late. Our country showed him no love then, just hate. By branding him a criminal, they sealed his fate. So I beg your pardon if I choose not to celebrate. No mercy for a World War II peacemaker, computer pioneer or top secret codebreaker. All this was overshadowed by his sexuality. In 1952, he was convicted for homosexuality and his punishment, a chemical castration. And he was one of many men throughout this nation facing prison or prohibition for his supposed crime. But now we live in more enlightened times. Can we pardon 50,000 other men convicted for not hiding who they chose to have sex with or being reported for what they did consensually? Can we get some justice for them eventually? Because Turing was a genius and Turing was a hero. But if I'm neither one, it does not make me a zero. Because we're not all geniuses, but we all deserve love and freedom. And we're not all heroes, but we deserve the chance to be one. Because Tom Daly coming out made the news. And yet so many people said that's not news. But so many wouldn't do the same in his shoes. Now that YouTube video has 10 million views. And that 10 million came from one man making one choice to use his voice. And many men and women had to fight for his freedom to love is now his right. Alan Turing didn't have that. Nor did 50,000 others who lost a war with the law for being lovers. We must pardon those 50,000 mothers' sons. Because it's not really justice if it's just for one. Um, just in terms of that poem and listening to what you were saying and what you were saying, Maureen, um, I think my growing up was kind of realising as things were being undone, how much damage had been done, you know, so tw section 28 um, being taken away, you know, as I was leaving school, I didn't realise that it was in place. It wasn't something that I knew teachers felt the pressure of, and that's why um, my identity wasn't reflected in, in how I was taught. And I didn't know that it had been um, illegal. When civil partnership came in, I thought, oh, I thought I could just get married when I grew up. I didn't know, like, I didn't know you couldn't get married. It yeah. was like that kind of idea of, um, I didn't know almost how, how difficult it had been um, because I was raised by a mother just telling me I can be what I want, I can do what I want, I can love who I want. And, um, you know, idyllic, you know, but also without the knowledge of, of how difficult it had been for, for many generations before. And um, that quote, I, I can't remember saying um, I, I knew I was black, but I figured out I was gay. But it was kind of, I discovered my sexuality, but my racial identity was kind of imposed on me. Yeah. It was like, like, I grew up figuring out, oh, my friends like 
my male friends like girls, most of them, and, and my girlfriends like boys, but I like boys, but I'm not a girl, so I'm, I'm, I'm gay. Ah. Um, and then when I got to, to more to university, it was like, so as a black man, how do you feel about this? I was like, oh, I was busy figuring out my sexuality. I never yeah. thought about being black. Um, so that kind of came later, and yeah. that was kind of more what my 20s was about. Like, my teens was about my sexuality. My 20s was about being a black man. Um, so that's kind of... Yeah, maybe that interview is talking about something like that. I can't quite remember it, but... Yeah, well, I... Um, so, actually, I was going to... Uh, I was going to go on to, actually, uh, 1977 and, and um, the blasphemy case, but what I think... Because I thought we were going to have forever, and actually we've got no time at all. <laughs> because I think what's actually come out um, of that discussion is, is, is probably the visibility issue. Mm which I think for gay people, particularly, you know, as gay artists, both novel- novelists, which you could say is, you know, you almost are in, you're an invisible uh, persona if you wish to be. Playwright, slightly less invisible because you can stand at the back and see how they're all reacting. Performer. I mean, I also think there's a huge thing about kind of different forms of visibility or invisibility. You know, there was a time where we were required to be invisible. I think lesbians have never been required to be visible. I think we've always silently been the invisible minority. And I'm not sure that we're terribly visible mm-hmm. now. Um, so I wondered in terms of uh, how one feels about visibility, invisibility, being seen, declaring oneself as gay, because a lot of people who are gay, and in, even in the theatre, don't declare themselves, don't come out. How many gay actresses do we know? Several, but they're not out. Um, so I, I just wondered, I don't know who wants to answer first, but I think there's a thing about being out and gay as a practitioner, as a novelist, as an artist, as a performer. What drove you to be out? Because many people are not. And also about the <coughs> notions of visibility and invisibility. And in one's art, I mean, whether sometimes gay people use disguises and codes which I think we've used for years, and whether we use dress codes and other ways to inform each other that we are who we are without informing the wider society necessarily that we are who we are. I mean, um, you know, know, girls dressing in, you know, drag, boys dressing in drag, and how that's changed over the years, and also how those literary tropes have changed, whether... There were the codes and things that we used early on that have now dropped out of use, and if we're using different codes or different, or whether we're so overt now that there are no codes. That was a really long question. I don't know. I mean, um, when I decided that I was gay. Um, <laughs> I read Simone de Beauvoir, The Second Sex, and I read the section there, and I thought, oh, well, that's all right then. Um, And so I sort of took a decision that, since it was all right in France, it's got to be all right everywhere else. (laughs) Um, And so I just decided to, as I say at the end of the microcosm, or get the protagonist to say... Um, just to pick myself up and walk out and be myself. And I was not prepared to spend time 
hiding or disguising. Um, and as I've said, I was extremely lucky. I didn't have a job to lose, as my first girlfriend did. She was sacked because she was gay. Um, and I didn't have any family. I had no parents to be alarmed and upset. Um, and so it was relatively easy for me. Um, and so, in a sense, I have been able to be visible, but I do not think that everybody has to be. I am not for outing people who are not out. Mm. I feel very strongly that it has to be the decision of the individual, their circumstances, whether they can face it. And it's not up to the rest of us to say, you should be out. Mm. It must be an individual decision. Some people can take it, some people can't, some people's circumstances are different. <coughs> so, Maureen, do you think that emotional that. honesty, which is obviously a kind of mo emotional, psychological... Because um, in a way, it's not a, it, it is and isn't a moral issue for you, because you're not saying everybody has to be... How has that informed your writing... Is it? Do, do you feel that there's a liberation in your writing because you've never had to disguise yourself, as it were? Or well, I have written several gay yeah, novels. I mean, let's yeah. put it that yeah. way. Um, so, but um, I don't want to feel that I am inhibited from writing a novel that is not identified by whomsoever as being gay. I don't believe in the concept really of gay writing. There are uh, gay writers who sometimes but not always necessarily write gay works um, and I quite often prefer to uh, see a particular subject in a, what would be called a straight context mm. um, even though if you tot up my um, particularly my poems and my 19 novels, you probably come out with at least 50% all round, and in the case of the poems, uh, probably 90%, <laughs> um, which do have a gay theme and a gay resonance. Um, but this should not be in any way a restriction on a writer. You should be able to, or any artist, any creative artist, you should be able to do what is in you to do. Mm. Neil, do you want to pick up the baton? Yeah, I... Um, I was very lucky when I was at college. My best friends were radical feminists, and that was the context in which I first came out, meaning I came out to my family. Um, and the... Like Maureen, I'm not in favour of outing anyone else um, but I do think there is a moral dimension to it um, I, I spent a lot of time being very angry with a lot of very distinguished people um, who have very high profile and often very lucrative mm -hmm. careers who in the dark years 85 to 95 did not come out and did not step up to the plate 
And that was very difficult to sit on one's hands and say, okay, well, that's your personal decision. Uh, that's my feeling in retrospect. I think a lot, uh, quite a few people could have done more. Yes. Uh, because it was all hands on deck. It wasn't a time to say, no, I'm sorry, I feel slightly uncomfortable about that. Well, I'm sorry you feel uncomfortable, get on with it. Would be my argument, but I would. I agree with Maureen, absolutely. Coming out is something one does for oneself, not something you can do for somebody else. Uh, having made that step, it never occurred to me to be otherwise than uh, frank in my subject matter, but even more to be frank in my cultural influences. Mm. I mean, both in my writing and in my theatre work, I'm very indebted to the great historic traditions of gay culture. People talk, in my opinion, a lot of utter <coughs> bollocks about something called the gay sensibility. I have no idea, and I never have had any idea about what that could possibly be. But gay cultures, in the plural, very specific traditions on at the highest levels of the highest of high culture to the lowest levels. Um, there are many ways in which we have our own cultures, and I've drawn on those. Um, one odd, for me, perennially odd effect of being out as an artist was the very strange double bind, which is that if you ever produce a work that has identifiable gay content, the critical reaction tends to be, ah, yes, yes, gay. <laughs> because you're gay right so gay gay and then if you produce something that doesn't have identifiable gay content it's so why have you done that that's not gay and I used to get very exhausted at that I remember one particularly crowded week when I opened a show at the National Theatre and a show at the Vauxhall Tavern on consecutive <laughs> nights. And that was very exhausting. Um, and I remember very vividly, in 2012, I was opening a production of The Picture of Dorian Gray at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, which I'd adapted. And I was interviewed by the Irish Times... And I got to the end of the interview and I said to the interviewer, because I was in shock, I said, aren't you going to ask me about being gay? <laughs> and it was the first interview I'd ever given, and that was 2012, and I did my first professional production in 1982. That was the first interview I'd ever given as a translator, performer, director or novelist that I hadn't been asked um, to justify my work yeah. uh, on the particular grounds of either why are you so gay or why, you, <laughs> why aren't you gay today? <laughs> um, and I was so shocked that I actually asked the journalist, and to his great credit, he said, no, why would I? 
ask you that. And that was a moment I felt like, it was a bit like the day of my civil partnership ceremony, I felt a weight walk off my shoulder and it was only then I had realised I'd been carrying that label and going, no, it's fine, it's my choice, I believe in coming out, I identify as a gay person, I'm cool with all of this, and I realised I'd spent 30 years profoundly not being cool mm. with all of that, and I'm really glad it's over. I'm really glad that I can be queer as queer as queer as fuck <laughs> doing one thing, and then my next show is I'm doing a new stage adaptation of a novel by Camus, who I think had not one homosexual <laughs> cell in his body. Uh, that rarest of all things, a pure heterosexual. Um, and I don't, I don't think anyone's going to mind. And I'm experiencing... So I'm talking about... It's interesting, you talked about, you know, the aftermath of the 50 years that we've been through, well, I'm only just beginning to realise how much I've been through, how much weight I've been carrying. And I have to tell you, it's much better without the weight. And I am... I can't wait for the next 50 years. What is going to happen now it is possible to create and to live without that dead weight round your ankles. What, what, what are we going to see? You Remember know. Mrs Thatcher, <coughs> yeah. we can't assume that it will always be upwards. Mm. No. Well, Dean, at the moment, you're going to carry the torch for the young generation. Yeah. So have you, I mean, you obviously come from a very, you know, your mother was very loving and said you could, you could love whomever you loved and You've, uh, but you've been out. I mean, you are out. Mm-hmm. You haven't been. You haven't gone back in again. <laughs> you are out. Was that was that was that in any way difficult for you? Because um, you know, often when we think ma- uh, male black culture, it's very macho. You've wrote, written poems about how macho it is, and and do you feel that you have to counterbalance that, or that you are working? within that mainstream culture? I mean, how do you Mm. feel yourself aligned both as a gay man and a black man? Yeah, I mean, coming out was really unremarkable for me. It was like, I did it how everyone else does it in terms of, like, well, everyone in my school, you know, they're asking people out. So that's what I did. I asked this guy out. I said, oh, do you want to go out with me? And he said, no. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) But then I'd come out. And, like, that was it. Like, everyone was like, oh, you asked out John? And and I was like, yeah, I did ask out John. They're like, oh, okay. But he said, no, ha, ha, ha. And that was it. Like, (laughs) that was the only big deal was that, like, you got rejected. Um, And... And, and so in school, it was, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but, you know, talking about that kind of... So basically, when I, a few weeks after I'd come out, Aaron, who was, like, one of the most kind of, like, popular guys in school, quite sporty, this black guy, and he came up to me and said, how come you asked out a white boy? And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, well, how come you, you never asked out any of the black guys? And I was like... And that made me stop and think, because actually I didn't consider the possibility that any of the black boys might even be gay. 
you know, I, I knew I yeah. was, but I, I kind of had an inkling that John might be, but I didn't even look at any of the black boys that way. And mm. I think that's something that I've been kind of figuring out throughout, <laughs> you know, the past 15, 16 years since then. Like, um, why then did I not contemplate, you know, um, being mm. with a, being with another black man? And um, I think, you know, there is something in um, black culture that, that often doesn't want to recognise it. Not necessarily... Um, always rejecting people but mm. just not even making it an option to talk about it um so you know friends that then have come out in their 30s their parents have said we've always known but when you've told us now you can't be part of this family wow. and so like knowing that that's going on for some of mm. my friends that you know people are prepared to know about it but but not Keep for you to secret. say it once you say it, it's very different but um i think in this for me, in growing up in London and being in the UK, I've always felt like, well, in a big city, you can find people mm. that, that can support you, and you, even if it's not your family. Um, mm. Being in, you know, visiting family in Jamaica, you know, where they've inherited the laws that we've got rid of, yeah. um, it's very different. And so, you know, we, we celebrate what we've got here, but we've done so much damage around the world in many African countries and mm. the Caribbean. And so mm. that's something that I feel, yeah, I've been lucky and I am lucky now, but there's people living 50 years in the past in the present, yeah. if you know what I mean. And so I think that's something that I'm always conscious of as well, that as a, as a community, we have to think beyond our country and think about what's going on around the world. And um, that's why I think visibility is important where we can do it, um, where we can be, be out in our writing, in the work that we produce. And that can give some hope to people elsewhere, not just people mm. here, but people elsewhere where they're looking to us for some sort of mm. guidance out of and help and support out of um, what they're facing, which we have kind of, luckily yeah. come out of so that's something i think is important would ve- i would venture even in our enlightened uh, british society that actually when you're little because it isn't the norm it will be boys and girls <laughs> because it isn't the norm that even when it i mean when i was growing up i didn't even know what a lesbian was you know i had no, no idea why i was different at yeah. all none whatsoever until somebody who i didn't want to sleep with called me a leser <laughs> uh, boy um, and and that kind of snowballed, and then and then I thought, well, I might be, but oh, he'd already made me ashamed of that, and it was only it was sleeping with a girl that I suddenly became unashamed of it. Um, but I wonder, actually, it, I think visibility and and kind of having people of an, another generation or your generation, but usually an older generation, being visible, writing about being gay, homosexuality, and kind of. The every and also kind of putting us in that gay canon. I mean, mm. I, you know, in particular, we all look to Oscar Wilde and Virginia Woolf, and kind of saying, look, all these people have existed through history. You're okay. You can survive this. Yeah. It's still incredibly important, even though at the moment, and it may be just at the moment. I mean, I think Brexit has unleashed a lot of prejudice. But at the moment, we feel to be that we are in an enlightened era. There have been enlightened eras before, and then I'm afraid we've gone through dark ages. So mm. do you feel, do you feel a, a social and moral responsibility in that way as um, gay artists? Oh, I think no. I do. Yeah. I mean, um, but also, I mean, you write from inside yourself, um, and... If that's what's inside you, that's what's going to come out. Um, Unless, you know, you are absolutely forced to repress it um, by 
largely by society, the times in which you find yourself. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Virginia Woolf because, of course, um, you know, in the same year, uh, The Well of Loneliness and Orlando came out. And the difference between, um, you know, the sort of rather upbeat Orlando Mm -hmm. and the very downbeat ending to The Well of Loneliness um, is is extraordinary, really. Um, And between those two there was a sort of great gap. Mm. Um, There was Mary Reynolds, um, but she had to write about gay men in classical times um, because she couldn't cope with writing about gay women. I mean, the friendly young ladies ends with them having to go off and get married, Mm. um, much as the well of loneliness ends. Mm. well, three cheers for Sappho. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel uh, in any way responsible in that way? Knowing that I you... I do. I do in retrospect. Mm. Um, I can't say it. I sit down at my desk and go right. Moral no. responsibility. <laughs> no, no. 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 Well, it's that would probably a, it's lead a, to very bad writing. But yeah. you know. <laughs> but. Uh, Nothing gives me greater professional and personal satisfaction than somebody who I've never met saying to me um, or writing to me, but especially saying to me, you don't know me, but something you wrote or something you put on really helped. That yeah. that makes everything else pale in comparison. Yeah. So I'm very aware of that, and I'm also very aware of both people I've met of the generations before me, what an incredible inspiration and use they have been in my life, but also people I've never met and never will because they is long dead. Um, I'm an absolute nutter for queer history and I think uh, LGBT etc. History Month is a fantastic thing, the way it's, it's beginning... The familiar story that you say, you know, when I was little, I didn't know what I was because, of course, all until very recently, all queer children were raised by straight culture. That's no longer true. Um, But until very recently, that was true. So to an extent, we grow up in a desert and art art is our friend. Culture is our friend. And I mean culture in the absolute broadest sense of the word from your local uh, drag queen auntie in the pub to as you say um, I think everyone should read The Well of Loneliness and Orlando together it's reading them together that is so fantastic we need both they are both cries from the heart Mm. and a fantastic pairing of books um, so yes, those things are all really important to me, and I. But it would be a great mistake to think that our creativity. Sometimes people do that terrible thing of going, "Well, now you've all been legal forever." Of course, gay culture. We don't need gay culture anymore, do we? Which. I mean, I'm a nice person, but that can really, (laughs) really step on my hem, hearing that argument, you know? No, uh, loving a man 
is an amazing unknown project. We need all the help we can get. That is no, never going to stop. Love, family, politics, we need our artists to tell us how to do these things and we need them just as much in a period of freedom, perhaps, I think perhaps even more, especially in the moment where I think uh, I meet, the younger gay men that I meet are really adrift uh, in pornography, they're really adrift about this whole marriage thing. I mean, I have a lot of younger gay male friends who've basically said to me, I'm 23 and I'm not married. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> what have we done? Exactly. What have we done? So we need, we need our poets, mm. our unacknowledged legislators, definitely. And Dean, do you feel... You're, you're so tiny, it feels awful to put that social responsibility on your shoulders. But do you feel uh, that it's, it's a moral imperative to discuss your sexuality in your writing? Um, I definitely don't feel ashamed to do so. I feel very comfortable with writing about relationships or not relationships, writing about grinder or whatever I want to write about in my poetry and be very open about talking about that as much as I... We'll talk about sexuality, I'll talk about race, I'll talk mm. about mental health. I think there should be nothing that I'm experiencing that I can't put into my writing. And um, fortunately, that's, that's been proven correct. Mm. Like, no one's told me, you can't write about that. So I carry on writing what I feel like writing. And like Neil says, I get people write back to me and tell me this has helped me because of this and this has helped me because of that. And things are quite instant now. So people can tweet me, Facebook yeah. me, you know, all of that. And, and it, it feels like you're having a conversation. You're not writing something and then throwing it off into the unknown. It's like people can respond straight away to what you write. So you know if it's doing something. You know if it's um, affecting people. And because I perform mm. after events, I can talk to people in the audience about, you know, how they can relate to what I'm saying and encourage them to write their own stories. Like, people come to poetry events because... They have something they inside them as well, and they want to hear themselves reflected back. And often, you know, when I do workshops, um, whether they're with a queer group or not, um, there's people that have a desperate to say something. And um, as soon as you give them permission to tell their own story in, in a poem or in whatever form they want to write, they, they run with it because everyone has a story to tell. And I think it's there's more democracy in who can have a voice now, yeah. you know, because of um, how we can put our voices online and share through whatever medium that's available to us, that um, it's not just us that are telling the stories. Everyone's telling their own stories. And, and um, there's still some hierarchy when it comes to publishing and all of that kind of stuff. But I think that's slowly going to disintegrate as well. And, um, you know, everyone can speak for themselves. Aiden, that fills me with dread. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what am I going to um, Talk about the democracy having their say. We're running... Uh, I'm going to be told off unless we ask some questions, I think. So can we open it to the floor... Uh, if people haven't got any questions, I got lots. But um, it would be lovely to hear from you. So um, I think just put up hands. There is a microphone over there. Uh, yes. Thank you. My, my name's Richard. I don't want to um, inject in any way a discordant tone. I want to <laughs> add an alternative voice. 
um, while complimenting Neil in particular for drawing attention to the absolute necessity of challenging the assumption that all became well after 1967. And so much of the publicity about this year is beginning at a position which disadvantages, I believe, many of us who are still suffering um, in some ways from the consequences of what was not completed and has still not been completed all those 50 years later. But I want to put in a plea because, um, for outing. That's where the alternative view comes from. And I, don't, and I do that because I don't want any one side to claim 100% of the morality, of the morals behind either claiming, claiming it is inexcusable or it is absolutely mandatory. In, in my personal and professional life, I have assisted in the outing of people who I believe are morally culpable for, in effect, killing the lives and the integrity and the hopes and the aspirations and, yes, the love of people who have lived in fear of the power, the power that some very closeted, very damaged and very hurtful people have had over those who've had the misfortune to be in such a relationship with those people who are gay uh, but have lived their lives by pretending not to be. And at one point or another, I think the line had to be drawn and we had to say, enough is enough. You've had enough time to work out, if you're a 40, 50, 60-year-old, that treating other people who are 30, 40 years younger than you as if they have no right to exist is intolerable. And I didn't wish to be part of the, the process of colluding with the damaging effect that that had on a whole generation of people. So I'm for outing under certain circumstances. Thank you. Yes, please, here. Sorry, where? Boy in blue. You're a boy to me. I felt very embarrassed. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask, thinking about the last 50 years and significant things that have happened, what effect do you think the emergence of HIV and AIDS had on gay literature, if you want to call it that, um, and art? Yeah, big question. Let's all get together again and talk about that at greater length. Uh, it had a profound impact because... Um, In so many ways, um, to pick two ways, a lot of people within the larger power structures of this country decided to exploit that purely medical emergency for their own ends mm -hmm. in the press, in the government, in the police force uh, and in the church. And that threw us into an ex turned this country into an extraordinary place where and it, most of us became second-class citizens overnight. And that was a great shock and uh, uh, revolting. So that had a huge impact, and that impacted on everybody, and therefore, of course, it impacted um, on artists. One of the things, when I talk, when I talk about the first wave of the epidemic, 85 to 95. What I want to talk about now is the incredible tenderness, the incredible care, the incredible creativity, 
um, if people say to me now, what were the 80s like, Grandpa? I say the 80s were about benefits. Every two weeks for the 80s, I was doing a benefit, and they were fantastic occasions where all sorts of people from all sorts of different cultural traditions came together, usually late at night or on their day off, and put on a show in order to provide frontline social and medical care. And not, very few of those events were even recorded in any way, and they're certainly not talked about. And I want to talk about how good... I know I come across sometimes as Mr. Positive, but I do want to talk about how good we were at responding to the epidemic as a people the extraordinary coalitions and those amazing, amazing positive nights. Because I think they're not, those stories aren't good copy. The much better copy is the, the violence, the funerals, the, the, the list of the dead. And I, so I make a point when I am asked to publicly comment about those days to talk about the ordinary heroism and compassion. It was, it was amazing. Um, I lost three friends. <clears throat> I wrote three poems that were read at three funerals. And that was AIDS for me. Dean, does your generation, I think they have a very different attitude. Do, do they have a different attitude to sex and sexuality? You know? mm. now, I mean, the, the danger is that it becomes history when it isn't history. It's still very present. Yeah, yeah I mean, in the, in the present, I guess, now we know we can live if we get it. Um, but I think the stories are very much always tragic ones. If we mention HIV and AIDS um, in any theatre poetry, it's always the tragedy. And I, I, what you were talking about, I would love to see and read more talking about the kind of the community and how people pull together. Because whenever, I'm, uh, whenever there's a film or a play or a book about that, I know I'm going to have my heart pulled out and someone's going to mm. die and it's yeah. going to be very, very traumatic. And I want to I, I I understand it was traumatic and um, that trauma lives with people now that that survived yeah. it. But I do want to also hear about the, the, the positivity that came out of that from communities coming together. And I'd, if there aren't plays, well, maybe there are plays and books I should be reading that do cover that. I'd love to know what they are because I feel like any time I've dipped into that, it's been trauma. And I've had to be, I have to take a break mm -hmm. from this subject matter because it always feels so, so heavy. Um, yeah. Is there anything I should be reading? I think... Okay. I think that feeds into the whole thing of, of a, a kind of I was, a, when I thought we had hours and we obviously don't. I was going to talk about cultural stereotypes and and how often we are um, the stereotypes exist in popular culture, but invariably we're victims or we're mad or. Lesbians. Vampires. Lesbians are Lesbians always vampires. mad, and they always kill their lovers. Always, and everything. So I was just thinking the AIDS story was actually victims rather than victors. So instead of seeing us 
So that's kind of how and how Hollywood wants to see it, is kind of emaciated men dragging along. And there's something about uh, heterosexual culture that's often wanted to portray us in certain ways, and, and we are allowed to exist in those spaces, but not to allow to exist in other spaces. Um, do we have time to discuss that, or are we going to be... I just out? wanted to say... Um, it seems to be a rule on Sunday evenings that if you have a gay female couple, they will be split up. Um, yeah. Or die. Or, or die. Or kill each other. Um, Merrily, yeah, that one um, kills the other, don't and, uh, and I thought for one moment, I thought it was passing, this, yeah. this trend. Um, but no, it's reared its head again in Call the Midwife. Yeah. yeah, and in Last Tango in Halifax, which was Last wonderful, Tango. and then she and becomes she killed. Again, the ah. moment, moment they're happy, you know, yeah. in a car crash, <laughs> in a ghost at the back, bloody hell. Um, do, uh, so, so we're not allowed to exist at all, really, are we? No, we're not. Happy no, way. we've got to be ghosts. Um, boys, are you allowed to exist in any happy way? Um, well, camp, I suppose you're allowed to be camp, aren't you? Moonlight. Oh, yes. If you no one, if you haven't seen Moonlight boys. yet, please. <laughs> Go and see the film Moonlight, and that's from a play um, turned into a film. And um, it is one of the first films where I've seen, you know, I don't want to do any spoilers, but I felt good at the end, you know, and, and I, saw, I saw a bit of myself in there, uh, even though it's set in America in, in the ghetto, neither of those things are directly applied to me, but I saw black men love each other, and that was just beautiful to me. So that, and it made me realise... I rarely ever see that, yeah. and so we need to. We need more of that going on. Yeah. yeah. No, we all need to keep working. <laughs> we need. We need to keep working. I mean, you know, we've had Carol, but my copy is worn out. Yeah. You can only watch it so many times. We look forward to the next one. You know. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. The neg- the continuing negative stereotyping of, of lesbians in popular culture. I just. I agree. Look I mean, how happy we are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, call the midwife. Shame that that was a really downturn in, I thought. The BB, bloody BBC. Yeah, bloody yeah. BBC. Yeah. 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 It's Sunday evenings, yeah. you see, you can't have a happy well, day got, relationship. We've got two more, and I think we've got time for two more. So can we go there and then there? And then we probably have to be kicked out. The whole idea of a posthumous pardon for Alan Turing seems quite wrong. It should be a posthumous apology. As for, I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. And the word pardon implies that he did do something wrong. And there's 50,000 other people. Yeah. 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 And then the lady in the middle there, yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to ask, because this deeply concerns me from a country like India, from where I come, um, odd art products like poetry or movies or uh, maybe advertisements, they are stopped at, for example, at the censor board, and they don't really reach the audience. Hence, this topic is still a taboo. And that really concerns me as a student of gender or media, because um, the fact that, you know, it's not there, and um, it does not, um, it's, it's not validated, or its, its existence is not, you know, recognized, because it's not there on, um, in public discourse. I mean, I want to know what you think about it. Maureen, do you want to take that one? Well, I mean, yes, I mean, I just... 
totally sympathise with you and wish there was something, you know, that I could do about it. But um, these cultural differences are extremely difficult to overcome. Um, you know, it's been a long journey um, since the well of loneliness. Mm. Um, and I hope you don't have to make as long a journey. Yeah. I, I think one way of looking at that appalling situation, hopefully, is to remember, with reference to the timeline that Mel started us off with, the real change in this country wasn't top-down. It isn't a matter of waiting for laws to change. Of course, all the campaigning that was done for legal change was necessary and valid. But the real change, the cultural sea change of daily lives and the incorporation of daily lives into the discourse of culture was through feminism and gay liberation. And any government that thinks that it can perpetually hold those two great movements in abeyance, especially in the age of social media, is probably barking up the wrong tree. I mean, I, th I think, again, I'm being Mr. Cheerful, but <laughs> we have... It was interesting, Mel, in the green room, Mel said to me, oh, my God, 50 years, it's taken so long, and I don't agree at all. It's been unbelievably quick. I, I cannot get used to the fact that if anyone had said to me in 1990, actually in 1995, oh, civil, hang on, civil partnerships, it's only 10 years down the line, I would have said, what planet are you on? That will never happen in this country. It can't happen. Look at the press. Look at, look at David Cameron, who may have apologised, but, by the way, was on the wrong side of the, de mm. of the debate in all the debates for the repeal of Clause 28. Mm. He either voted for it to be maintained or he abstained in every single debate. His apology is not worth... Anyway. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but we... So we have... Every there's a lot of... I mean, look how quickly it has happened. Um, and that... We need to pay attention to that. What appears to be... You know, the patriarchy is very fragile. Mm. It, it can just go. When I was your age, there was... It was impossible to dream of a world in which my partner and I could have our next-door neighbours who were also partnered round with their six-year-old son for tea, and my neighbour across the way brings us a cake, and her two teenage daughters don't even notice that there are four gay men in my flat with a kid. No one notices. I can't believe that. So we need to pay attention to how swiftly things can move. But the groundwork needs to be done. Yeah. 
Yes. And, and yeah. do, so are yeah. you optimistic? You think kind no, of Brexit I'm and Trump are the death rows of the patriarchy? <laughs> I'm hoping they're the death rows of the patriarchy and oh. not, not it reimagining well, itself. Well, no, it would be very <laughs> foolish to be optimistic in February 2017 when we've got <laughs> Theresa May as our Prime Minister. That is not grounds for optimism. <laughs> but, however, as I tell all my young friends, we got through the 80s, right? Come on. <laughs> Chin up, heels on. <laughs> Dean, would you like to make a closing? Uh, would you like to make a closing statement, or shall we just put our heels on and um, trot off? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the only thing I, I want to say is I'm, I'm glad you brought up your point, and I think we do have to remember the rest of the world when we're having these conversations. Um, I mean, they can censor internet and TV, but luckily books can travel in suitcases. So yeah. I think that's where books are still so powerful and so relevant is that, you know, in places where there is such heavy censorship, you can smuggle in books, um, put another cover on them, but get them into those countries and get people um, reading because, you know, that's what made the difference before. And I think it can make the difference elsewhere as well. So literature can change lives. Yes. Yeah. For sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah. um, Tim, do you need to... If you are interested in whether literature change, changes lives, uh, please have a look on Wednesday uh, at the Royal Society of Literature website when we publish literature in Britain today, uh, which we think is the first ever national survey done of how many people in our country read literature, what it means to them, and which writers they consider to be writers of literature. It's lots of fun, some of it's depressing, some of it's surprisingly uh, upbeat. Uh, but it is fascinating. Please have a look at that. Please also, if you could fill out a feedback form and tell us your views on this evening's event, we would greatly welcome that. Um, can I say thank you to Ali Temple, our events manager, who curated tonight's event. Thank you very much, Ali. Um, Thank you to Louise Jones and the team here at the LSE. I hope you're going to go and party all night having uh, had such a great festival here. Um, and uh, I wonder then, uh, we need to let our speakers get out so that they can get to the book signing and you can all go and buy books and get them signed. Please do that. Um, <coughs> Maureen said that she came to write The Microcosm in 1966 uh, not because she was brave, but because she was bloody-minded. Um, I suppose, I hope, after this evening, we'll all go away with a little bit of that literary bloody-mindedness, I hope. And I wonder if we could end with a very big round of applause to our brilliant panel, and especially to Mel for chairing. <laughs>